like a giant regenerating kaiju, we are back with a new episode of the Nerd Byword, and this week we are taking a closer look at Godzilla Minus One. The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome to a kaiju-sized episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only podcast that melts in your mouth, not in your hand. I'm Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris. And this week, we're going to be taking a closer look at the Toho Studios-produced uh, Godzilla Minus One. Uh, is the movie uh, actually uh, reflective of all the hype that is surrounding it, or is it kind of a dud? We're going to find out today. But first, as always, we need to dive into some... All right, Chris, uh, good news, uh, I guess, this week for uh, for fans of comic books like you and I. Well, there wasn't a whole lot of news. We are, as of the time of recording, we are in that dead period in between uh, Christmas and New Year's where not a lot is happening. There's not a lot of news to report. Um, so I'm going to punt back a little bit and and say that the DCEU is officially over. With the release of uh, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, uh, which took place on December the 20th, the DCEU is is done. And uh, I know that you and I plan to create like a, a full kind of retrospective episode on the good, the bad and everything in between. But I, I just wanted to take a moment here and and kind of just... I don't know what I wanted to do with this, but it it feels kind of weird, Dave. I'm not going to lie. Um, we're now at a stage at the end of this where the MCU is the one that's taking all the hits from Variety. Um, public favor has kind of turned on the MCU. And uh, oddly enough, if DC can do this right, they might be the the bell of the ball. If If... Superman legacy and everything else that James Gunn has in store can can work out well. Uh, I say this as uh, Rebel Moon has like a seventeen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I, I, it's just it's just a weird kind of I don't know if it's a funeral to just to to sit here. I ha- I haven't seen Aquaman yet. Heck, I haven't even seen Blue Beetle yet. But it's just a it's a weird kind of state of flux we're in right now dave look i'm i'm going to be completely honest with you um i I feel like the dcu has been a shambling corpse for a little while uh is just kind of walking around like some undead zombie and at this point uh we've just finally given it that 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 last uh you know bit of brain damage to get rid of it completely um it's just not it's just not been very pretty for a while right and arguably uh, it's not been particularly good from the get-go because the main thrust of the DCU was not ever really any good, right? Even when we had, you know, the occasional hit like like the first Wonder Woman movie, we get the follow-up, which was Wonder Woman 1984, which I think we can agree was a pretty big misfire overall. 
uh, for the DCU. You know, Shazam, the first one was pretty good. And although I found quite a bit to like in the second one, it was definitely a step down there too, right? They, even on the movies where they built some momentum, they were never able to maintain it. I feel like um, at some point you and I probably need to do an episode where we kind of revisit the DCU and kind of like evaluate it as a whole. You know, what were the highs? What were the lows? What was the good and the bad? And and what can we learn from it for the future? Um it's interesting because this is the, the first, uh, you know, shared universe that's been running for many, many years that's actually, you know, being rebooted kind of the way universes get rebooted in the comic books, right? Um, and I, I'm, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, the producers over at, at Disney and Marvel with the MCU are going to be taking a close look at how this is handled, how recasts are handled, how rebooting everything ha- is handled, how um, the general public reacts to all the actors changing and the approaches changing. Because as you mentioned, the MCU has been taking quite a few hits in the, in the press um, and from certain quote-unquote fans lately. And I would not be surprised if there's not been at least some internal discussion about what it would take to quote-unquote reboot uh, the MCU and and by doing that, uh, bringing characters back to the table that they could recast, you know, like like Steve Rogers, like, you know, Tony Stark, uh, a lot of these people that they've lost and there might be interest in um, revisiting those characters with new actors. But I think whether that would be successful or not, I, I think they're probably watching very closely what's happening with, with DC right now and whether they can make this work and come back stronger. Yeah, I don't know that I would want that. <laughs> I think um, one of the things that stood out to me is they laid down the slate of movies that are scheduled to come out in 2024. And it by hook or by crook it looks like even marvel is taking a step back to kind of recalibrate um the jonathan majors news um obviously being a big part of that uh there was a lot of real estate kind of accompanying him and the role of kang and so now they're being forced to pivot um whether they're going to recast whether they're going to make it another character as the big bad or that that remains to be seen. Um, But I think uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch kind of both companies. I I think um, if they do this right, I think uh, mutants will be the next phase of, of the MCU. Um, So it's, it's going to be interesting to watch both companies and see what they do moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dave, what is your news story for this week? Yeah, so, uh, you know, being this giant nerd that I am, I'm always perusing various publications about news regarding, um, you know, comic books, the comic book industry, graphic novels and the like. Um, And it's always interesting when, uh, you know, people from, let's say, quote unquote, the mainstream press, so not people that are primarily focused on reporting on the comic book industry, kind of take note of a trend uh, or something going on in the industry um, and and pen a piece about that. So over at at Forbes, uh, Rob Salkowitz actually uh, in late December uh, put up a very very interesting um, article that basically dives into the state of censorship uh, of comics and graphic novels over the course of 2023. And it's a really interesting read. Um, 
Salkowitz makes a point, obviously, that there have been, you know, uh, issues with comic books going all the way to the 1950s, um, you know, that censors have frequently come for, uh, you know, comic books because, you know, there's a perception that it's all supposed to be specifically aimed at children. But he then notes that the, the, the tenor of what is going on in trying to censor comic books is very different these days uh, and very um, uh, politically driven. There's a very strong... Uh, you know, relationship now um, between, you know, uh, the ebb and flow of American politics and uh, attempts to censor uh, comic books and graphic novels or, or, you know, books really in general. Uh, Groups like, uh, as as the articles, uh, just I'm going to quote this here, uh, Salkowitz says, groups like PEN America, the American Library Association and the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund have tracked a huge uptick in the number of titles under scrutiny at schools and libraries around the country, including some of the most highly acclaimed works in the medium. Um, he then goes on to list some of the ones that have been specifically attached, uh, Gender Queer by Oni Press, uh, which uh, deals with uh, you know uh, gender and sexuality and tries to make it uh, relatable to um, adolescence. Uh, is is one that's been really catching a lot of flack around the country. Um, there's also uh, my Corre- uh, Corrado's uh, 2020 memoir Flamer, uh, which is about his struggles as a gay Filipino Boy Scout, uh, but also deals with uh, other things. Uh, according to the article, I've not read this work, which is why I'm quoting uh, Salakovitz here again. Um, also touches on topics like mental health and bullying and ran afoul of book banners in Oklahoma, Texas, Utah, and elsewhere, uh, as well as a Georgia school district, according to this. Um, and then, you know, this has been going on for a couple of years now, Arch Spiegelman's uh, 1986 graphic novel, Mouse, a survivor's tale, which deals with uh, the Holocaust um, in 2022, was already, uh, you know, making waves in, in Tennessee specifically, where a, a school system, uh, you know, banned it from being used in the classroom. And now there's been other states, uh, school boards, uh, including in Missouri, uh, where they have been trying to censor that. And, and you know, it, it, it just kind of, the hits keep coming. The graphic novel adaptation of Anne Frank's Diary has been uh, seeing uh, increased censorship. A graphic novel adaptation of uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and all of that seems to be uh very much politically motivated anything that uh that links to gender or sexuality in any way is being very clearly targeted uh when it comes to to comic books and graphic novels and oddly enough anything that uh criticizes authoritarian regimes uh like nazi germany also seem to be getting increasingly uh censored in schools and and public libraries so um you know, I found this very, very interesting read. Obviously, as a huge fan of the medium, uh, I think it has a lot to offer in making um, works accessible uh, to uh, younger audiences. Uh, you know, the Diary of Anne Frank is is a, is a seminal piece of of you know uh, writing that most um, high school kids encounter at some point, right? But having it as a graphic novel adaptation, I think, is a very interesting way um, of you know gathering a different audience for that work and it's a very significant piece of work so uh you know having read it i I feel like it's probably a good thing to have read at least once right um and so seeing those kinds of things censored obviously deeply troubling as a as a comic book fan such as myself what are your thoughts chris um it, it can be increasingly infuriating just to see these headlines and to see these things come to pass like it feels like I'm trapped in a nightmare sometimes. Um, 
you know, the diary of Anne Frank was part of my middle school reading curriculum um, in the Midwest and in, in a red state, no less. And to just, to just see the level of cowardice by people rather than, I think this has long been my criticism. You and I, as parents, um, your, your little guy has, has a ways before, you know, these conversations probably start to take place, Dave, but we kind of live in a time and a day and time where like so many people just had kids because they thought it was the, the next step to do. Not because they wanted to be parents, not because they were worried about or concerned about kind of paying it forward and preparing the next generation. They just had kids because they had kids. And so there are so many people that don't even have conversations with their children. They bark orders at them. And I think when things like this happen, you're clearly not talking to your kids. You're clearly not having conversations with your children. I think there's a I think there's a very almost a very different tangential conversation we can have here um, that I think is really interesting, and that is one of you know what what is your goal when you are raising your kid? Right? right? Are you are you trying to create um, to to go back to uh, to Austin Powers for a second? <laughs> uh, are you trying to are you <laughs> trying to create a this mi- took a turn? <laughs> are, you, are you trying to create a mini me, a clone of yourself? Are you trying to help? a, a yeah. human being fully realize who, who they wish to be. Right. And so, um, you know, I, even, even with a, even with a toddler, you know, I've already noticed there are just, there are things that he enjoys and, and that he likes to play with that, uh, would not be, uh, things that I would enjoy or right. had enjoyed as a child myself. Right. But so what do I do? Do I force him to play with the toys that I would prefer him to play with? Or do I just lean in and say, okay, let's go ahead and figure out where this takes you. Right. You know what? And I, I think he- that, you know what, Dave? Go I ahead. had an a, a, I had an epiphany the other day. Is I was thinking of along the same lines um, because I introduced Ninja Turtles and superheroes to my kids at a very young age, but I didn't, you know, hold their head underwater, or I didn't throw them in the deep end of the pool, saying you will love this thing. I kind of realized that I have fashioned myself and prefer to live my life as like a to- a tour guide parent. Like, I'm going to show you some cool stuff along this journey. And if you like it, cool. If not, find something you love. I'm not going to lord something over my kids' heads. Now, at the same time, I don't want it to be misconstrued like I'm some kind of pushover. Because that's clearly not the case. Because, Dave, if you go to a museum and you start cutting up and you start acting a fool, they will politely escort you out of that museum. Or impolitely, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of museums are you going to? But no, uh, I, I, I totally, I totally agree. Like, um, and I kind of even liken this to like, if we want to get real deep to like personal religious beliefs. Like, why am I doing this? What is this simply because someone told me I had to do this? Why do I like Ninja Turtles? Why do I like superheroes? Because my dad told me I had to. You know, there. I think there's something special about sharing something with your kids and your parents, of course. But like, if it's not natural, if it's not an organic appreciation of that thing, then 
you're just selfishly trying to live vicariously through your kids. Like I can tell you now that one of my parents was particularly interested in comic books in their youth uh, or in their adulthood. You know, like my, my dad really Lucky. liked the Chris Reeve Superman movie and that was about it, right? But even though they weren't really into it, um, I found my way to them, you know, and they never like tried to discourage me from that. And, th- and I think that that is sort of the, I guess, to, to circle back around to this like censorship thing. To me, yeah, is there a certain degree of of making sure that things are age appropriate? Absolutely, but I I don't think it is a good move to to try to shield kids and their development from information necessarily. As long as you're introduced that information at, at the right time in in you know their development, and each kid is you know different uh, when it comes to that. Um, it's better for them, uh, and you know, to, to, as, as human beings, to grow into fully realized humans, to have you know, quote unquote, all the information and and figure things out as they go, rather than you know, a parent standing there and saying, "This is what you're supposed to think," and and, and now shut up, right? Um, so you know, I, I, let me put it this way: in a in a completely um, like, do I think that a parent should be able to say, okay, I don't I don't think it, it's the right time for my kid to read something like genderqueer. Mm, okay, fine, whatever. Go for it, right? I think the real problem there is that that by removing books like that from libraries, from schools, etc., the parents that are that find that their kids are at a point where they could read that now don't have the option, you know? And I, and I think that that's a shame. And I know people are going to say something like, oh, well, you know, they can go on Amazon and order the book or something. Yeah, you know, or, or, or go to a bookstore. Yeah, sure, you know, if you are um, a person who has that kind of disposable income, right? But, I mean, there's a reason that uh, public school libraries and public libraries are in such heavy use. You know, there are people in this world that do not have the financial means to constantly be purchasing books. And so this is an accessibility level for those people, it costs nothing to get a library card, right? And it opens up all this information and all this learning to you. And so I feel like we're shunting off an entire group of, 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 of children from the possibility of being exposed to information, whether their parents are, or even if their parents are okay with it, right? Because it's just a matter of means. And I think that, that there's an economic element to this that I think is a real crying shame. And I, and I've found, um, just talking to some friends that like so many of their nerd origin story took place at either their school library or they graduated up to the public library in the city or town that they lived in. And when you're removing items from the menu because of your personal belief system, not anyone else's, why are you dictating someone else's options? Um, Someone else's, uh, you know, availabilities um considering the complexity uh and and abilities of technology at this point i find it difficult to believe that for example in a school library a parent can't couldn't pick up the phone and say hey in your library system please put a note on my son's account that he is or daughter's account that he or she or or they are not allowed to um you know check out this book and then if you know they try to check out that book, you know, it gets scanned and then it just is a pop-up that pops up that says, you know, parental permission not granted to access this book. Boom, problem solved, right? And then it's still accessible to others. Yeah, so I'm just not a big fan of censorship in general, I guess. Um, again, you know, I, there's a certain element of like age appropriate. 
you're talking to someone who just a few months ago had a big long discussion about Palestine with with my kids and a car full of kids. So yeah, I'm all about um I found I saw a trend a couple of years ago that was about Danish parenting, about just blunt honesty, and you can use flowery language and you can you can uh, uh, grant freedom to the emotions that are tied into that. But I would much rather be open and honest with my kids about what's really happening in the world, and then we can kind of get through that together rather than keeping things from them and conceal I, I feel I, yeah i feel like what we're what we're what we are as a society at that point creating our children that are going to grow into adults that can't function in the real world because there's been a whole whole bunch of stuff shunted away from them that they've never encountered before and they don't know how to function in the face of that also one final thought did these idiots never read fahrenheit 451 <laughs> that's probably the next one they're going to start censoring <laughs> <laughs> Fahrenheit 451 let's burn that one. <laughs> uh it would be it would be uh it borders on on parody almost at this point yeah. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Uh, what are your thoughts on the end of the DCEU and the much heavier topic of censorship of graphic novels uh, throughout 2023? Find us on social media at NerdByWord or individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, it is time for our ByWord Big Talk when we will be reviewing Godzilla Minus One. So stick around. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome back. This week, we have a special treat for you. We went full subtitles and watched the uh, 2023 action science fiction movie, Godzilla Minus One, the 37th uh, entry in the Godzilla, uh, Toho Godzilla franchise, I believe. Um, and uh, it's 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 going to be a, a real interesting ride since uh, I am a longtime Godzilla fan and uh, Chris is a fairly new convert to the church of gogi so uh let's go ahead and start up with our Uh, as we always do when we review a movie or a piece of media in general, uh, we each uh, selected three things we really liked about the movie and three things that we really didn't like so much about the movie. Um, so just real quickly, Godzilla Minus One was released on December 1st, 2023. Uh, it was directed by Takashi Yamazaki. Um, was produced and distributed by Toho Company Limited. Uh, the box office currently stands at $79.6 million. Uh, there's been some... Uh, non-specific reports about the budget uh, there was speculation that the budget for, of the movie was around 15 million although the director has stated in interviews that it was less than that he he actually said uh, i believe the quote is i wished it would have been that much <laughs> so um it uh, stands at a whopping 98 percent on rotten tomatoes if you care about that kind of thing um and the quick tagline for the movie is that Japan is already devastated by uh, World War II when a new crisis emerges in the form of a giant monster in 1947. So, Chris, let's dive in. What was the first thing that you enjoyed about Godzilla Minus One? So, it's funny because you told me when we had, I, I said, hey, I, I'm all in on Godzilla. I am, 
I, I'm, I'm in love. I'm a, in love with this character. I'm in love with this property. And you said, watch Toho because Toho gets the human aspects right. And I remember Godzilla versus Kong. That was one of our critiques is like, we don't give a, you know what about these humans, please get them off my screen. Um, and you weren't kidding because the human aspects of this film, this is, this is a human drama film featuring Godzilla. Like Godzilla is like, an artist that comes on during like the remix is like a, a featured artist on the track because this is everything. Um, the, the supporting cast in particular, everyone around Shikishima is just acting there. Took us off, uh, you know, Noriko, um, like the kid, the professor, like I, I love these people. And I'm invested in their story, and I am. My heart is broken when their hearts are broken. I am cheering when they're cheering. Um, and when you can take a Godzilla movie, and your overwhelming consensus is, "Oh yeah, Godzilla's in this movie." I forgot for long stretches of time. Um, it's just, it's just magnificent, and. Um, the overarching theme of live you need to live and like the triumph of the human spirit of human ingenuity of brainstorming of using your science brain to to try and defeat these thing this thing that has come across your path is just is just incredibly inspiring yeah, I, I, I'll I'll totally agree. I think the supporting cast in this was really strong. I know we we each have uh, some issues with with uh, Shikishima as a character, um, but I will say that I think the acting across the board in this movie is really, really, really good. Like it's it's very gentle almost, like in its pacing for a good chunk of the first act. Um, besides, you know, the first appearance of Godzilla in, in the beginning there in the, uh, we could almost say the prologue, right? But uh, it's it's very gently paced. Um, and in order to make something like that really compelling, um, you know, it's difficult. Uh, and I think that the actors in, in this in this movie really pulled it off. Even in the quietest moments, there's so much going on emotionally, I guess, even if there's not a lot going on as far as physical action is concerned, that you're absolutely riveted the entire time. Um, and look, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to lie here. Uh, not not all of the Toho movies have perfect human stories, right? Um, a part of that probably is because the, the franchise has been running so long, and when you're watching Godzilla movies from the 1960s, you're dealing with a very different... Um, uh, a very different cultural backdrop, not just in that the movies are Japanese, but also that it's, you know, a significant portion into the past. Um, but they're never boring, you know, even when they're like strange or goofy or weird, you know, the human parts of the Toho Godzilla movies are never boring. Godzilla basically, Toho Godzilla movies to me basically come in in three flavors, right? So you have flavor one, Godzilla is a a, a villain, a force of nature that it destroys everything and has to be stopped at all costs. Boom, right? Um, Godzilla minus one falls under this category. The original Godzilla movie falls under this category. Then you have Godzilla, the 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 anti-hero, right? The, the force of nature and destroys things, but there's a you know a bigger, badder monster 
um, and Godzilla is a tool that um, is a tool that uh, that that can be used Sim- to stop similarly this war what of they're evil. doing. Similarly, what they're doing with the legacy, uh, the, the very legacy. much so. That's 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 and a lot of Godzilla movies were like that from Toho, right? There's a lot of like Godzilla is our only chance. We need to unleash him on this other monster, right? And yeah, that's the that's the approach that the uh, most recent American Godzilla movies are taking. And then the last is Godzilla, the outright hero, right? And that's you you get some goofy stuff like particularly in the in the sixties. Uh, early 70s you know Godzilla is running around with a kid and all sorts of stuff like that right and then the Godzilla is just like this this lovable giant lizard that sometimes has to lay the smack down on somebody um the 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 ones that have the the best um and most interesting human elements I guess are always the ones where where he's the bad guy the force of nature because that is something that the, the human characters can really sink their teeth into the tragedy of it right um the the emotional distress the 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 destruction you know those sorts of things um that that's probably the stuff that actors can sink their teeth into the most and although the other types of movies can be very very good as well um it, there's something to be said for what they did here by giving the actor so much dramatic potential i uh i just want to say full spoilers to a movie that we're doing a review episode on, but I also love, and I made this joke on social media when I saw it, but the overarching theme being you need to live. And then at the end, Godzilla goes, okay, I will. (laughs) You're damn right. I will. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a, it's a complete acknowledgement. I think of the fact that Godzilla is not going anywhere. Right, yeah. like this, 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 this is such a touchstone character in pop culture. You know, kill him off. We'll start a new timeline or something. It'd be fine. He'd be back. All right, Dave. I stepped on your toes a little bit. Uh, not Godzilla esque, uh, yeah. but um, your your first like of Godzilla minus one. You can tell that we're thinking very much in the same direction. But yeah, it's it's the human story element here. I think that this movie actually has something to say, um, and and that is that's the root of godzilla like i don't know man have you have you had a chance to actually watch the original 1954 godzilla i'm about halfway through it before i i feel are you are you watching the american version or the japanese version japanese let me ask you this is raymond burr in it no i'm pretty sure it's the japanese version that's on pluto tv Okay, well, it, I will I will strongly encourage you not to watch the American version because they just cut a bunch of stuff and then insert Raymond Burr randomly as like a reporter reporting on the destruction of what Godzilla is doing. It's really weird. No, he has no, he has not shown up. Mm-mm. Good. Then the Japanese original is significantly better because it leans into exactly what this movie does. Right? It has a lot of things to say about you know um, the power of the atomic bomb, war, right? Those sorts of things. And I think this movie gets it right in a lot of ways in, in that the best the best science fiction, which is what this is, uh, the best science fiction ultimately always has something to say about the human condition. And you've already touched on this, you know, like one of the main themes of the movie is you live, you know, like you are more than the worst thing you've done in your life. You know, um, there is something to be said for forgiveness <laughs> or even forgiving yourself. But there's so many undertones here. Like there's a very, very clear anti-war message, obviously, right in the beginning, right? Um, when uh, Shikishima, you know, lands on, on Odo Island and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I have engine trouble and, you know, they're all like, we know you don't have engine trouble. Your, your plane is fine. And then one of the mechanics is like, we need more people like you who just don't want to, you know, sacrifice their lives for nothing. 
You know, like there's a very strong Ooh, anti-war message when, uh, here. When you know? my, my favorite moment may be when um, the professor is giving his speech and he said, this country treats the sanctity of, I'm paraphrasing, but the sanctity of life too fervently. Like we don't care about the sanctity of human life enough. And so our goal is that we're not going to lose anybody in this operation. We're not sacrificing anybody, right? I love, yeah, I love that too. And there's a lot of anti-government stuff here, and not just like anti-Japanese government, but just like anti-government mm-hmm. in general, anti-American government, anti-Japanese government. Governments don't care, right? Governments are always worried about something else and not trying to help their people. And so the people have to, in this movie, rise up, and you know, it's like, yeah. If, former military people, you know, going out there and taking care of this rather than the government None of it can be sanctioned. Something. None of it can nothing, be nothing, yeah. Because you're in the middle of the Cold War and you can't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that, right? So this has something to say. It has something to say about governments and how governments interact with their people. It has things to say about war. It has th- things to say about, you know, the, the destructive nature of the atomic bomb. And let's just let's just be completely honest. This is... I've always loved scenes in Godzilla movies where they take their time building up towards his his heat breath, right? And then he he unleashes it, and it's like this oh, holy crap moment. I think the uh, the first of the um, the current crop of God- American Godzilla movies really did this well. My my wife is not not familiar with Godzilla at all, right? So I, she actually went to the theater with me to watch that one, and she really enjoyed it. But then at the end, when he's fighting those those mutos or whatever they call them because we can't just call him kaiju i guess um there's that moment where he just suddenly powers up and, and unleashes his breath and like just completely obliterates one of them and my wife just like jumped up in her seat and looked at me like what the heck was that i was like yeah now we're talking you know and this movie does something very similar when he first unleashes that heat breath the impact of it is literally like an atomic bomb like the cloud that forms looks almost like a mushroom cloud the concussive force that comes off of it like th- there's so oh, that, much oh the blue i'm watching it right now there's so much visual um you know cues to make you feel that that impact of those atomic bombs that were dropped on japan right like there's this movie has something to say and i really really appreciated that all right chris so what is your second like of the movie our boy is truly terrifying (laughs) let me tell you because i'm looking uh, i've got the imdb page pulled up right now and it just keeps playing the trailer over and over again and as I was saying about this sporting cast, I think I think my favorite part of this movie is Noriko. Uh, Minami Hamabe's portrayal, her eyes are the size of saucers when she's on that trolley car or whatever. And she sees him for the first time. And she just says, is that Godzilla? It, it just... This, uh, all the emotions, the excitement at seeing Godzilla, the terror of seeing Godzilla is just absolutely paramount in that moment. Um, and and uh, there has been a lot of jokes about like the, the Godzilla design, um, like about his tiny little head, um, about his tiny little T-Rex arms. But I'll tell you what, his eyes especially were absolutely terrifying in this movie um but yeah it it was abjectly terrifying in the best possible way yeah i can only agree with that i really like what they did here uh with the design you can kind of tell 
um, the director sort of is like, you know, wearing his influences on his sleeve a little bit because like ginormous, you know, like really big leg, tiny head Godzilla is a, is a design element that's popped up before, right? Um, kind of a little disproportionate in ways. Um, thunder so thighs. Yeah, thunder thighs. He's definitely <laughs> leaning into Godzilla thunder thighs here. Um, but I really like the look. I also like a lot of stuff like um, how his like his spikes, his like fins, like protrude further out, like jump out when he's getting ready to do his his uh, heat breath. I thought that was a really cool look, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, just like. The biggest thing to me, and and one of the reasons why in the 90s that American Godzilla movie starring Matthew Broderick was such a piece of crap to me, is that Godzilla is Godzilla, right? Like, Godzilla at this point is a recognizable character uh, in in his own right. And you can... um, you can, you know, tweak the design and change some stuff over, but there are certain elements that just have to be there for it to be Godzilla. And the American Godzilla back then was basically just a weird-looking T-Rex, right? Um, and And this is very much... Godzilla, right? Like the design is spot on, the face is spot on. Are there some different design elements? You know, some proportions moved around? Absolutely. But in the essence, this is, you know, this is Godzilla. This is what Godzilla looks like. Um, And it's such a force of nature in this movie. I absolutely adore that. It's just such a almost, you know, unstoppable uh, force of nature. Uh, That's the best take on Godzilla by far, I think. and so I, I thought it worked extremely well here. I have not seen that movie, but I remember that I was obsessed with the P. Diddy song. But now I found out that he's worse than any kaiju monster. And it was originally a Led Zeppelin song, Cashmere. I'll just go with Cashmere. Yeah, I thought um, I thought Deeper Underground was actually the better song off of that soundtrack. But that's just me. Um I didn't like I didn't like the the PDD song from that soundtrack that much, but I did I did, really did like uh, Deeper Underground. That's it. That's a cool little song. My aunt was staying with us at the time and worked at Taco Bell, so I got a bunch of free merch. So <laughs> that's what I remember about that movie. I did not. You know the it. the most recognizable thing to me about that movie is what uh, the Japanese Godzilla movies had to say about that version of Godzilla. There's a Godzilla movie called Final Wars where it's it's basically like Godzilla going through a gauntlet of all these other kaiju and just like destroying them. And they actually do an appearance of the American Godzilla monster. They call him Zilla. They remove they remove the god part, you know, he's just he's just Zilla and the fight lasts literally about 30 seconds. Like Godzilla just like stomps his button moves on. <laughs> I just love that. Is it is it a totally normal thing to hear Japanese people say the original name for to see, to hear them say Gojira? Like that just says something to my soul. It just repairs it. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, you know, and and I, obviously I grew up calling the calling the character Godzilla, and it's not something that's going to go away easily for me. But um, you know, I texted you before I watched a movie. And I was like, uh, is this a sub or a dub? And you were like, oh, no, it's subtitled. And I was like, hallelujah, because, oh, my God, one of the worst things about watching Godzilla movies uh, from Japan is the dub. The dub always, like, I don't know what it is, but Americans cannot dub a Godzilla movie for the life of them. So I, I just want to, you know, watch it in the original and read subtitles. I was glad for it. All right, Dave, we are on to your second like. And as history nerds, let's just bask in this one. Let's bask in the glory that is a fantastic monster movie that is also a period piece. God, I love a good period piece anyways, right? And I think that is one of the great um, 
misused, underused, underutilized things, I think, in, in science fiction uh, storytelling. Uh, we always want everything to be the, the world outside of our window, you know? And, and sometimes it's just a lot more fun to tell the story in a certain period in time. And, and I think this works so wonderfully here. If you think, you know, the original Godzilla movie came out in, in what, 1954, I think. And Correct. it's very much a post-World War II commentary, right? And so leaning into that is really a back-to-basics approach. So this movie starts in, at the end of World War II in 1945, and the bulk of the action then takes place in 1947, so even earlier than the original Godzilla movie. And so because of that, has an even stronger tie to the things that happened in World War II and is even more effective at commenting on it, I think. Um, so I, I, I think making it a period piece was such a smart move. And I really wished that uh, there was a bigger willingness to make science fiction stories that take place at various points in history, rather than every movie having to somehow reflect the, you know, the world outside our window, because I can see the world outside my window anytime. I just like (laughs) open my window. Right. But, uh, but having cool things happen at various points in history, I think is, is, is just more interesting, Uh, which is why I'm such a big advocate for, you know, making the fantastic four movie a period piece, you know, start that sucker in the sixties, you know, I I would, I would love that A, a good period piece goes a long way, I think. And I think, um, what I love about this is it's, it's completely a period piece. It's completely immersive. Um, it's not, there's so many quote unquote period pieces that we get that are just nostalgia bait. Like, oh, here's a blockbuster video. Oh, here's a eighties style trucker hat. Here's an eighties soundtrack. Like I, I, it, it really completely immerses you in 1940s 1950s japan and that's what i appreciate the most about it yeah it's it's um we talked about this oh my god it's been almost a year i think we had an episode where we're talking about like you know franchises that do nostalgia well and franchises that do don't do nostalgia well i don't remember that episode but one of the things i said is like the big nostalgia thing right now is stuff like stranger things you know stuff stuck in the 80s but it's really disingenuous right because just because somebody's running around drinking a can of new coke doesn't mean it captures the feeling or the zeitgeist of that moment right it's window dressing this this movie for being a period piece has surprisingly little window dressing you know, it's not it's not hitting you, trying to hit you with all these um, very specific references from the 1940s. There's not like a, a soundtrack with like a ton of like 1940s artists playing on the radio or all that kind of stuff. Not at all. And unless you're really paying attention, if you walked into the movie halfway through, you might not immediately pick up on the fact that it is taking place in the 1940s. You know, there's little things, you know, fashion, somewhat right. Uh, some hairstyles, you're like, huh. Oh. You know, but overall, it, it's not the kind of thing that rubs your face into what decade it takes place in. And I think that's really that's really important for being immersive, right? Because I think there's an element of, you know, people trying to make a period piece and sticking as many references as possible in there. And like, there's no way that somebody living in that decade would have encountered all of those references over the course of two hours, right? <laughs> that's absolutely nonsense. Um, it's just overpacked and therefore unrealistic. But I think this felt like a very appropriate way of making a period piece. And I think it's completely additive to the 
the anti-war message and the social critiques that this movie has by how well blended in it is as a period piece. I think if they didn't do as good a job, I don't think the the messages would have would have hit home quite as well as they did. Absolutely. All right, Chris, that brings us to your third and final like of the movie. I kind of dropped a hint at it, but I'm going full force. The regeneration is just incredible. The regeneration, uh, regenerative powers, the the Wolverine Godzilla powers of regeneration is just so cool to see. Terrifying. Terrifying to see his face half blown off and then just regenerate. And then for them to completely atomize him for all intents and purposes and then at the end you see him regenerating again that just added to the fear factor that just added to the dread of this character and i i absolutely loved it yeah uh you know i I don't think this is the first time that they reference that godzilla just kind of heals up it's just in the older movies he just kind of like stomps off into the water and it's gone for a little while then he comes back in the next movie and he's all healed up you know um but i like the way they visualize this here um, it, it looked very, very cool, uh, and and they did it in really tense moments too, like the, the that encounter where they like put the mine in his mouth and then shoot it, and then half of his face is blown off. That that oh holy crap moment when he just heals up and just keeps going is is really really cool. It's very well paced and it's a great reveal. I mean, we're at that point about halfway through the movie, I think, and they're like, oh by the way, you know this guy Wolverines, you know, like it's yeah. it's it's really it's really cool. Yeah, I, I have to say it was very very well done and a cool addition uh, to the movie. Kind of tangentially on that point, Dave, but I don't know what to make heads or tails of budgets or box office uh success i don't know what i don't know what money is dave (laughs) i don't okay so so let's be clear right i don't think that box office is in any way an indicator of quality and i really don't care too much about box office uh only in i you know when i really like a movie and i think there's room for a sequel i generally hope it's successful so the studio sees a need to make a sequel um but if it's a standalone movie i don't care the movie's done and i just want to enjoy it you know so if i like something i don't care how much money it made on the flip side, I'm always interested in how things are made, you know, and and making big blockbuster movies is not cheap. As we know, we're like 200, 250 million, 300 million dollar movies being made. It's absolutely crazy. Um, and that is why you hear a lot of stuff like, hey, we, you know, we pump 200 million dollars into the Marvels and it's not making enough money to be profitable. You know, oh, it's a flop. Well, a crap ton of people saw it and enjoyed it. But hey, it's a flop, right? Um, so what I find really remarkable about this movie is that reportedly it costs less than $15 million to make, and it features a, a CG Godzilla, right? So just like the American Godzilla movies, now uh, they've gone CG. Uh, for those of you that are not longtime, you know, kaiju fans, you know, most of the older Godzilla movies were obviously not CG. They used... Uh, suitmation. They basically had a guy in a rubber suit stomping around pretending to be Godzilla. And uh, which, we, which we just lost that actor, I believe. Thanks for the good news, Chris. <laughs> Sorry. Um, anyways, uh, the point is that um, they made this movie with really good looking special effects, right? And they made it on less than $15 million, you know? And that that is... Uh, that really should be um, a moment where 
uh, people in Hollywood realize that you don't have to spend $200 million to make a movie with special effects that is riveting and interesting. That if you lean into the human story a little bit, that if you use the special effects a little bit more sparingly and specifically, right, that you can make a really, really incredible movie for a, a much more affordable budget. Like if you think about it, this is the most successful Godzilla movie uh, in Toho Studios history, right? As far as like Godzilla movies, it's the most financially successful. And it made, what, about 80 million, 79 point some million dollars? That's it, you know? So if they would have thrown uh, 200 million dollars uh, at this movie, it would it would be considered a flop. It's critically acclaimed. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. It's incredibly well directed and filmed, right? But it would be considered a flop. Now, for comparison, the the first of the, the current batch of American Godzilla movies had a budget of 160 million dollars 160 million this movie had less than a tenth of that and did very similar things i mean we can talk about that in in your dislikes i think that's going to come up but like it used godzilla pretty sparingly and very specifically right and the, the first of the the current crop of american godzilla movies did the exact same thing right a lot of cutaways very sparingly used right and we here we have a movie that cost less than a tenth of that money and everything is on the screen. It's an absolutely beautiful movie and the special effects work incredibly well in the context of what's going on here. So I, I just find the whole thing incredibly remarkable just from a, how they managed their money, how did they, you know, do some of the, the, the CGI effects and how were they able to pull all of that off on a much, much smaller budget than, than these, these huge, you know, productions from Hollywood and and make arguably, I would say, a much more interesting movie to watch. Like if you compare Godzilla Minus One and, and Godzilla 2014, I'll watch Godzilla Minus One much more often. It's interesting to me because we just got out of the strikes um, and we see how underappreciated our writers, our screen actors how underpaid they are uh, in a lot of respects. And yet we're spending monopoly money <laughs> on budgets. And so it's just a further indictment on these studios that we already don't have any time for. <laughs> like I'm already, I'm already over David Zaslav and Warner brothers. Like I'm already over, like you're like count your days. <laughs> like I'm already over your crap. And now this is just a further indictment, I feel, of those big time studios. I think there's something to be said to be not not necessarily um, a penny counter, but somebody who is, I think one of the biggest things that you have to be if you're going to make movies is efficient, right? You have to know how you're going to do certain things in order to do it in the best looking, but also most efficient way possible. And I think there's huge inefficiency in Hollywood these days, you know, like we, we just uh, a few weeks ago talked about, you know, the, the MCU getting a you know bit of a different direction. And one of the things that they always talked about on their TV side is they're going to fix it in post, 
you know, not we're going to fix the scripts before we film it. No, we're going to fix it in post, re-edit it, make new special effects. We'll fix it in post. And that's incredibly inefficient. If you walk in and you know exactly what you want to do and how you want it to look, you can be incredibly efficient in how you accomplish that goal and cut off a whole bunch of waste. And I don't know why Hollywood can't figure that out. There are a bunch, a bunch of pencil pushers that want to maximize profits. The very first thing they should be able to figure out is why did it take us 160 million to make this Godzilla movie? And it took them 15 million or less. And I think, um, you know, we, we talked about like dismissing box office numbers here as neither here nor there. I, I saw, I saw a post the other day that really hit me. It was just like, it's almost like art. Uh, it is art. And um, sometimes you just have to make art for art's sake and screw the box office numbers. All right, so that uh, that brings us to our next segment, which I like to call uh, "Oh crap, oh crap!" There are things we didn't like about this movie. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and preface this by saying that all, all of my dislikes are pretty nitpicky uh, because I really, really did like this movie a lot. Um, but uh, you know, this this is how we do things. We're not just gonna sit here and gush about a movie, even if we enjoyed it. We we do take a step back and try to find some legitimate criticisms too. So, Chris. Go for it. <laughs> this is okay. So I, I echo all of your sentiments. The only abject thing that I disliked about this movie is this: the main character, <laughs> Shikishima. <laughs> like I love, love the supporting cast. Um, the only problem is he didn't deserve any of this. He has this beautiful family. He has this beautiful family with Noriko. He has a beautiful child that fell into his lap and he doesn't appreciate them. He doesn't love them like appropriately, in my opinion. He has this incredible group of friends to have a group of co-workers, Dave, like this that are at your house for dinner, that are like encouraging you, giving you life advice, uh, to have a neighbor that you could just dump your not kid, but you're really your kid off on. Like if I was that neighbor, I'd be like, I'm ready to square up. Let's go. I hope Godzilla gets your ass. Like <laughs> just dropping this kid off. Like, what are you doing? I truly, truly can't stand him. He doesn't deserve any of this. The eject chair. I, I saw that. That one was that one. I kind of saw that one coming. He didn't deserve it. He did not deserve any of this. Like, and to your point, he he's such an a-hole to the, his kid. And he's like, I'm not your father. Like, what the heck is that? Who says that to a kid? A two-year-old, nonetheless. Like, she yeah. sucks. This two-year-old little girl. And she's like, daddy. And he's like, oh, I've told you before, I'm not your father. I'm like, jeez, dude. Yeah. So I love the human cast, except for the one guy we're supposed to be rooting for. <laughs> so you know to a certain extent i agree with you i i i thought i had some real issues you know liking this guy i think there's something to be said for what they're going for here you know here's somebody who's dealing with an enormous amount of guilt and and ptsd and he feels he's undeserving of life you know and he's trying to uh and i agree you know, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he's trying to move forward and and I under I understand what they were going for with him. I think the big problem is that he ends up coming across almost too unlikable. Like there's not enough glimmers of 
you know, what he could be if he wasn't weighed down by all this guilt and pain. And like the, the scenes where he breaks down and he's like questioning whether this, you know, he's he's just dead and going through the motions and this everything he's seeing is just a dream of a dying man. Like those are those are genuinely affecting moments. Like, you know, very well acted and really you know, like emotionally affecting. I just think what they needed with this character was a little bit more, you know, he's a good guy. Like the only point where you see where you see him like being worthy is when he when he refuses to you know leave the baby in in that marketplace like he puts her down he's like not my problem and then he comes back and takes her you know and that that was the one moment where you're like okay there's still a good guy in here you know but uh even even like he never offers you know to take them in like he never offers to take noriko and the kid in noriko is just like i'm moving and deal with it you know um so if they would have leaned a little bit into you know, just giving him a few more moments of just being a genuinely good person that is just troubled, I think it would have worked a lot better. I know what they were going for, and there are incredibly affecting moments with him. Um, but he, he comes across, in, I think, under the bottom line, as incredibly unlikable. Um, like, I don't know how he got these friends. Like, I don't know how he made friends with his yeah. co-workers. Because yeah. from what we've seen on the screen, he's just a jerk all the time, right? Yeah. Like give, give us a few moments where you where we see what they see in him, why they became his friends so much that they actually come to his house for dinner, you know, and and then I think it would have worked better. All right, Dave. Now we go from probably the overarching dislike to a nitpick. Yeah, you know what? I'm just gonna say it. Uh, there, there is there, there are two things that are so me problems that are, they're not really movie problems, right? <laughs> and so uh, the first is that I absolutely love the suit animation stuff like i love the guy in a suit <laughs> when it comes to portraying godzilla i love how how godzilla moves in in the older movies because there's a real person in there that you know uh, there's just really something about it maybe call it nostalgia call it a personal preference i love practical special effects to begin with um and i think that uh I can't be 100% sure, but I'd like to think that there was at least one practical special effect that I saw in this movie with Godzilla, and that's in the water. when the, the During the mine scene, there's like a close-up of Godzilla's mouth, you know, and his head, and I swear that was a model. I swear that was that was so well done. I don't think that was CG. I think that was a model. I, they must have built a model of his head for for that water scene, right? So I love practical special effects, and so I, I kind of just miss the suit animation. And I know it's not been a thing for a few years. I know Shin Godzilla uh, was was CG as well, and that's the way of the future. Blah blah blah, yada yada yada. But man, I just I really love the, the suit animation stuff, and I really really like. Um, anti-hero Godzilla you know I like uh, the and I think that's also why the American movies picked up on that approach it's a middle ground between you know Godzilla is a hero and Godzilla is a is a you know an evil force of nature I think anti-hero Godzilla is on a personal level probably my favorite take there is something about Godzilla that I just love I love that monster and I love to be able to have these moments where you get to root for the monster even if the monster is destroying you know a whole bunch of stuff um, there's something immensely satisfying about, you know, the 2014 Godzilla movie and that final fight at the end where he takes down those monsters, you know, because yeah, he's a force of nature and yeah, he's dangerous, but, but you get to root for him for a second, you know, and, and I, that is something that I've always enjoyed doing in the older Godzilla movies. So is this a Godzilla movie that I love? Absolutely. It's a great Godzilla movie. It's a fantastic Godzilla movie even, but 
as far as personal preferences go, I just missed it. I just missed the suit and I miss anti-hero Godzilla a little bit. Okay, so uh autocorrect has been on one for our conversations because right now it says the suit nation. And so I was thinking of like Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation. <laughs> I thought there was I thought there was an entire movement that I had missed out on. Because I want to be a part of the suit nation. <laughs> I, I typed that in on my phone. God, 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 bless, God, God bless and curse autocorrect. <laughs> no, I, listen, I'm, this just makes me all the more excited to kind of punt back and, and go back and watch all this stuff. Because I, like, I, I get it. Like, I'm, I'm so here for this. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to get your take on some of the... Um... Uh, the different takes on Godzilla, like force of nature versus anti-hero versus hero, you know, um, I'm, I'm interested in talking more Godzilla with you as you, as you go on that voyage. I'll say this, maybe this is the appropriate juncture. I don't know, but between this monarch legacy of monsters between I'm, I'm super hyped for the, the new Godzilla Kong. Like I'm, I'm all in like, this is, this is a great time, man. Yep. All right, Chris, your your next dislike, I think we're going to have to talk a little bit about because I have some stuff to say there. Okay, and so I, I think Noriko surviving feels like a bit of a cop-out. Uh, if for no other reason, because it's more that Shikishima does not deserve. He does not <laughs> deserve. He does not deserve his happy little family at the end of this. Um, so yeah, I, I guess it's a nitpick, but then it's just kind of, uh, a symptom of the greater problem here is like, why does he get all the stuff? So um, I'll say this. Okay. Two things. Number one, um, in the context of what the movie is trying to say as a, as a message, right. Uh, her surviving, I think works really well because the movie, I think ultimately uh, is about hope, right. And about choosing life and moving forward. Um, and so I think her survival actually is a nice addition to this. Plus, I am a sucker for a happy ending. I love a happy ending. That's just who I am, I guess. Um, can't help it. However, I don't think she survived. Um, no, no, no. It's not just that it doesn't work with the moment. I think she, look, she was not, she was not like hit by the heat breath or something, right? She was swept away by the concussive force. Um, and realistically speaking it's very possible to survive that if you're on the outskirts of a blast like that right uh that you can survive badly hurt absolutely you know we, we know that from reports uh about the actual atomic bombs dropping right you're far enough away but then if you pay very close attention to the ending as he uh as as shikishima is embracing noriko right the camera kind of pans around and you see that she has like these black marks on her shoulder and neck and so I think what what that is, a lot of people online are speculating that it's sequel bait. I don't think it's sequel bait. I think that once again, the movie is telling us something, right? Because this movie has stuff to say. And what it's saying is radiation poisoning. So I don't think, I don't think she's going to live, right? I think that the movie is um, ending on a note of um, Shikishima being able to say goodbye this time, right? Because I, I think the implication is pretty clear that this is not a, a a happy ending, right? Right after that, it cuts and you see Godzilla regenerating. So this is not over, quote unquote, even if they decide to not make a direct sequel to this movie and, and do something different as they often do uh, and go in a completely different, you know, timeline or version or whatever they want to do. 
Um, I don't necessarily think this is a happy ending. I really like the ending because I love a happy ending. I'm a sucker for that. But once once I saw like the black marks on her neck, I think the implication is that she's got radiation poisoning, which is again it, it's appropriate because it deals a lot with the movie deals a lot with like you know the the fallout from you know the atomic bombs, the destruction. You know, it's it's very much a metaphor for that. And although they mentioned radiation a couple of times in passing, they never really dealt with the consequences of that. And so doing that in the end and saying, look, she survived the concussion, concussive force of the blast, but she's still going to die, feels in line with what the movie would say. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that aspect. Um, I will say that, is your war finally over? That one got me. That's a great line, isn't it? Oh, so good. All right, Dave, I'm interested to tackle your second dislike. So this is uh, probably more, uh, again, a me problem than a movie problem. Um, And and that is there are vast cultural differences here when you're watching foreign films like this from an Asian nation like uh, like Japan. Um, But I think there are... There are moments in this movie where, although the acting is superb, it feels a little over the top. Um, and I think that is just a function not of the movie. It's I think it's a function just of the cultural differences in in where the movie was produced. There is a moment where he, uh, Shikoshima is like trying to find the mechanic from Odo Island again, right? And he is begging for help and he like slams his head down on the table when he's begging. And you're like, Holy crap, dude! Simmer down. I know you're desperate, but this is—you're going a little over the top, right? There are just a, yeah, there there are just a few scenes like that where it feels like the emotion isn't dialed up to ten where it belongs. Uh, it feels like they build an amp for emotions that specifically goes to eleven, so they can turn it up an extra notch. You know, um, and and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I'm I'm opposed. Uh, to the tendency in in Western cinema, uh, in movies like this, to make the the male lead character all stoic and never show emotion. That's one of the things I actually appreciated about Shikishima. Like he has these emotional breakdowns. He's dealing with PTSD. He he becomes desperate. You know the the dude cries. You know, which is not always something that the Western cinema seems horribly comfortable with sometimes. But it just felt like in a couple of places it almost pushed it a little too far. It got a little bit overwrought i guess is the best way it went from dramatic to melodramatic a little bit but i think that again is is probably more of a function of cultural differences than it is an actual problem with the movie yeah i think i think i'm i'm i tend to agree uh it's it's hard to especially as i'm getting into this uh and i'm a newcomer to this to figure out kind of what's over the top campy type of acting and what, you know, is, is appropriate for a film like this. So one man's really camp is another man's drama, right? <laughs> right. All right. So this uh, brings us to your final dislike of the movie, Chris. And this is just a straight up uh, nitpick. Cause this is like when you have an incredible meal and you're, you just want more of it. You don't want it to stop. I want more Godzilla. That's it. It's not a critique of the film. It's just like, I, I need more of that guy. <laughs> so uh, agreed. Um, 
you know, I, I, I too want more Godzilla. I had the same problem with the 2014 Godzilla movie. You know, there's a lot of like quick cuts away and you don't really see that much of Godzilla. It's a very slow build kind of movie. I think this movie does something very similar. Um, I think though, um, I read uh, in a interview because I, I do some research sometimes, Chris, not often, but sometimes uh, Yamazaki, the director said that one of the inspirations behind uh, Godzilla minus one was Jaws. And I thought that was actually very appropriate because, you know, the, the, the big legend around Jaws is that they built this mechanical shark as a special effect and the darn thing wouldn't work. Right. And so Spielberg ended up like having to do a lot of quick cuts, um, uh, and a lot of moments where, like, a lot is implied, a lot of stuff from, like, far away, right? To, to kind of um, work around the fact that the main prop, the main character of the movie, basically, wasn't working. And what you end up with is something that builds terror and dread a lot better because so much of it is implied. And I think that's one of the things that probably makes Godzilla feel really terrifying in this movie is that, you know, there's a lot of dread is he coming? When is he coming? How is he coming? And when, when is he going to show up? And then when he does appear, it's such a force of nature. It's such a punch in the face. And then he's gone again, right? And I think it actually helps build the tension in the movie to a certain extent. So although I wish I would get more Godzilla too, like I've, I've said before, especially about some of the American Godzilla movies, can we just cut all the scenes with the humans and just have Godzilla like for two hours? Um, but I think that that it's much more artfully done here than in some of the other movies. All right. And now your final dislike, Dave. Uh, it, it, it is, it too is a nitpick. Um, but I, if you're making a, a, a Godzilla that is CG, right? The choice of how he walks when he's on land is really quite a choice because he, he, he kind of lumbers, but in a very robotic way, there's almost like a sense of like hydraulics. Like if you really watch him, he takes a step forward and then his leg goes like, like his foot hits the ground and then his leg bends down a little bit more like the hard hydraulics are like working, you know, like I was making little sound effects like while I was watching the movie, like, like it felt like a very, very robotic walk and since this is clearly not uh mecha godzilla <laughs> i thought that was a, an odd choice one of the things that i always liked about you know again the, the suit animation stuff that they did is that godzilla you know because it's a real person in the suit moved in a very naturalistic way um and here it just felt very odd that this ginormous monster would move basically like he's got hydraulic knees <laughs> i mean like i got no notes <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just picturing him as like a Southern California lowrider vehicle. <laughs> you know, you know, you know. Actually, if he would have bent forward a little bit and waved his arms around, he would have been Ric Flair. <laughs> like that, that kind of like careful step by step. You know, <laughs> it's very very odd walk for Godzilla. But maybe that's just me having watched over thirty Godzilla movies. Like I'm just like he walks You're too weird, close. <laughs> You're too close to it. <laughs> yeah, probably. All righty, folks. So, final grade, Chris. Uh, what would you give uh, Godzilla minus one grade wise? This is an A, Dave. This is, I mean, us piling on Shikishima aside. Like, this is an A. I totally agree. Um, and you know me, I'm a I'm a stricter grader than you generally, but I I can't even give this one a minus. I just love this movie so much. Um, it's it's 
something special when this cheesy little movie series that you've loved your whole life gets to a point where people actually take it seriously and even movie critics are like, holy crap, that's a really good movie. It happens to have Godzilla in it, but it's a really good movie. Like it's it's almost, you know, vindication, you know? Okay, so I like some cheesy stuff sometimes, but you know, there's something there. And it really is. There's just something here. This is this is just an A movie, man. Righty, folks, there you have it. What are your thoughts about Godzilla Minus One? Find us on social media at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. We would love to hear your thoughts on the movie. And now it's time for our final break. When we come back, uh, it's time for two new nerd commendations. Now, for the last three weeks, I've been uh, recommending Doctor Who stuff. Will I finally break that streak? We'll find out next. All right, ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome back. It's time for the segment where we recommend new nerdy media to you and for Dave to gush about Doctor Who. We know it as... All right, Chris, you first. What are you nerd commending this week? Listen, this is this is how you do a page to screen adaptation, I believe. Uh, I am nerd commending Percy Jackson and the Olympians, uh, which is a series on Disney Plus. Uh, it adapts this first season adapts Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the Lightning Thief. Um, famously, we had two very bad, very poor films uh lightning thief and the sea of monsters back in the 2010s um the less said about those movies the better but this is how you do it uh the cast is top notch there's a real care behind the camera um from the casting from the script to um the set designers this is just an immaculate piece of work uh i i absolutely loved it and i cannot wait for every episode to be released uh at the time of, of recording right now we've had the first three episodes um I'm, I'm 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 super obsessed with this this series with uh with rick riordan's work i'm in the third series as it were i'm in the trials of apollo um just a really, really fun kind of young adult adventure story. Um, and actually, here's here's the great thing. That, what I love most about this, because they have actual kids playing kids. Um, you know, this with between this and Mutant Mayhem of, of letting actual teenagers play teenager parts, it's actually great. No more 30-year-old teenagers, please and thanks. So uh, the kids are really doing an incredible job carrying this and uh i'm I'm having the time of my life man isn't it incredible how uh kid characters should be maybe played by kids like the the early 2000s and 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 probably up to about like the early 2010s was awful for that dude i remember smallville right they're all supposed to be like at the first season sophomores in high school and they're like 25 years old or something i'm like dude nobody's buying this crap don't even man yeah. <laughs> no, so, Joe, yeah. I, I think the final the final nail in the coffin for me was Joe Manganiello as Flash Thompson in in the Raimi Spider-Man. Like no one nope, there's no way he's a high schooler. 
Nope, that is incorrect. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I've obviously not read the books. You've nerd commended them previously. I tried, I think, to read The Lightning Thief way back when, when it first came out, and just it didn't quite connect with me at the time. But I'm going to have to try to revisit maybe an audiobook form. Um, I really don't want to, you know, watch the series until I get a, a sense for the books a little bit so I can kind of see what I'm getting into. But uh, I, yeah, I'm interested, man. I'm probably more interested in the series now than I have ever been. Uh, and curiosity, I think, is going to make me give it a new sh- another shot here pretty soon. All right, Dave, I spoiled it, but you did not break your streak. No, I did not break my streak. For four weeks running, I'm recommending Doctor Who Media. <laughs> and it might not end there. Uh, no, <laughs> I promise next week something different. But, uh, you know, we've had the, a, a series of three specials that kind of put a, a bow on uh, the most recent era of Doctor Who uh, with the return of David Tennant. Um, and then... At the end of the giggle, we got our first glimpse of the uh, new Doctor, the 15th Doctor, played by Shuri Gatwa. And I've been very, very excited to see you know, him take on that role. I think he's a very talented actor and and just, just psyched to see what he does with it. And lo and behold, we got a Christmas special this year, and it was called The Church on Ruby Road. It introduced uh, the newest Doctor in his first full story, as well as a, uh, a new compan- travel companion for the Doctor in the form of Ruby Sunday, played by uh, Millie Gibson. And lo and behold, uh, let's just say that I already love this duo. I am so excited uh, for where this is going to go next. I think there is a, a real special chemistry between Godwin and Gibson already. I think that um, there is something so cool about Shooty's version of the Doctor. Look, one of the things is that the Doctor is always just like the weirdest person in the room, right? And to a certain extent, he touches on that. But he's also probably one of the coolest Doctors since, oh, I don't know, the third Doctor who was stranded on on Earth and was running around doing like martial arts and like uh, driving a cool car around, you know? Like the Doctor has been cool in the past, but it's been a little while. And so... So Gatwa's take on this character is is incredibly joyous, you know, like even when he's he's, you know, in a dangerous situation, he just he just revels uh being in like a crazy situation, revels the unknown, absolutely adores being like um in a new situation that he hasn't been in before. I really like that about this character. I, I, I like that he's leaning into that. There's always been a joy about the unknown in the Doctor, but but man, Gatwa's whole face just lights up when he's like dealing with these goblins, you know? Um, and I think that this is probably not my favorite of the Christmas specials I've watched of the Doctor. I think the story is okay, but I think it bodes really well for the upcoming season, which is going to start in May, because I think the role of the Doctor is in such good hands with Godwa. I just has such a great take on the character. I'm very, very excited to see what he does with the role. Um, probably the most excited I've been about Doctor Who in a fair amount of time. Um, the future looks incredibly bright. So uh, is it the greatest Christmas special? No, uh, not necessarily. Um, is it a really great introduction to a new Doctor and gives you great hope for the upcoming season? Absolutely. Um, I, I definitely recommend checking it out. Listen, after all this time, uh, I've watched a grand total of 20 minutes of Doctor Who. I finished uh, the World War Three episode of Eccleston season. Uh, salute to uh, Harriet Jones, MP for Flydale North. But... Uh, that's about it. So that's that's what I can say. So uh, 
I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the suggestions that I made for a uh, upcoming uh, uh, episode of the Nerd Byword is a watch my TV show where I pick an episode from a show that you have to watch and you get to pick an episode from a show that I have to watch. Um, and I've already picked an episode of Doctor Who that will convert you. I am I'm ready to convert you to Doctor Who the way I converted you to the Kaiju fandom. I was about to say, you just got me there. And I can do it in one episode. All right. <laughs> I'm in. Because Buffy, right. Buffy was not it. Was not the vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't age so well. Alrighty, folks. Uh, there you have it. That's it for a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you like what you just heard, get on your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can find us on all major podcasting platforms and our very own spiffy under construction soon loaded with brand new content website nerdbyword.com and hit us up on social media at nerdbyword on all the platforms uh individually that nerd dave and that nerd chris on twix and as always stay well and stay nerdy the nerd byword is written and produced by chris and dave two nerds with a love of all things pop culture the podcast features music by al Jimenez, with additional drops composed by joe biondi our show art is by ashery design find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available mm-hmm.